It's 6 o'clock in London, it's 1pm in New York, 1am in Hong Kong, 3am in Sydney, 10am in San Francisco. Good morning and good evening, it's 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Greetings, good morning, good afternoon and good evening depending on where you are in the world. My name is Patrick L. Young, the IPO vid live stream series 2 starts here. We left Series 1 after six excellent shows and Golfgate removing the Irish Commissioner for EU Trade, Phil Hogan. Now quarter four beckons and it's all to play for. Macroeconomics have rarely looked so exciting while geopolitics are bubbling along with all manner of potential high-volatility interjections for investments in every asset class. And that's before we get anywhere near incendiary issues such as Brexit. With the European Union unable to negotiate a coherent free trade agreement, at present at least, this of course may change. It's one of those things Brussels seems to always like to agree things just well on the stroke of midnight. They have a tedious 11th hour fetish, albeit we're around 22.58 right now. The UK government is moving ahead to clarify the Northern Ireland Republic of Ireland border issues without defenestrating the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland in a practical fashion. Cue meltdown as it becomes real to its opponents that Brexit is indeed real. Elsewhere, the UK government have announced a new board of trade, not a futures trading venue, I hasten to add, but a group defining the future for Britain, including various excellent minds on trade, such as the UK-born former Australian Prime Minister. Tony Abbott and the former Conservative MEP Daniel Hannan. And almost entirely ignored in the legacy media, ladies and gentlemen, but of course a fascination to financial folk like us. The UK have announced a fantastic free trade deal with Japan, albeit while the domestic government in London, and indeed domestic governments across the world, apart from indeed Sweden and arguably Belarus, seem to be closing down the economy once again. In financial centres, the City of London says return to the office is slow going. That's despite the best missives of parishioner Danny Corrigan to keep us updated about what's actually happening in the square mile and which hostelries are open. I find it interesting how many folks are worried about their jobs and yet simultaneously the correlation with people going into the office is low. Let's face it, I mean, if keeping up with the Kardashians is ending in 2021, I mean, if the Kardashian clan can lose a stipend like that, believe me, lots of folks in finance, despite Kardashian-sized egos, are in for a shock, particularly if they don't get to the office soon, methinks. For those who like a wager, the betting market eagerly notes the money was on Biden, but now it's going back on Trump. While the Socioeconomics Institute in the USA notes 87.5% of presidents have been returned to the White House when the Dow has had a net gain of more than 20% over the three-year period leading to Election Day. That worked, of course, for the previous incumbent of the White House, Barack Obama, when he was himself re-elected to a second term. 
will it work for the President of the United States of the moment, Donald J. Trump? If that doesn't trigger you, there's always the prospect of President Trump being nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, which has been happening increasingly frequently in recent days on the back of his, well, frankly, amazing achievements, bringing diplomatic relations between Israel, first with the UAE and laterally with Bahrain. In mergers and acquisitions, it's bloodbath at Tiffany's, of the litigation variety after LVMH finally pulled out of a takeover they had signed up to before COVID. Then they vacillated and finally ticked the now standard blame Trump box, which appears to be in every blame storm form worldwide. However, the excitement may be in the financial markets, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. LSEG, the London Stock Exchange Group's precipitate sale of Borsa Italiana so they can bulk up on the rather dubious asset of Refinitiv's data mining, is drawing heavy bidding from Switzerland, Deutsche Börse and Euronext. What an interesting trifecta. Who's going to be the winner there for Borsa Italiana at the end of the day? And will there be political shenanigans? That said, the big M&A news of today is the possible merger discussions between UBS and Credit Suisse to create a mega banking Swiss powerhouse. That brings us very neatly, ladies and gentlemen, to an interesting, well, first of all, circumlocution, confusion. An interesting day because here I am in my shirt and indeed I'm somewhat cold because it's a very stormy day in Valletta, Malta, whereas in London in the UK they're enjoying an Indian summer. Perhaps the weather has improved even because of Brexit or indeed despite Brexit has been quite the common vernacular in the course of recent years. Jake Pugh is an old friend of mine. He's back in markets after a hiatus in the EU's hub. However, he returns from Brussels without love because he was there as a, an MEP for the Brexit party where he served from July 2019 until the UK left the EU on January the 31st this year. Having said that, Jake has comprehensive knowledge of capital markets, truly comprehensive knowledge. He's been a fund manager. He's been on the floor of the Life Exchange. In fact, he was there on day one of the Life Exchange in London, if I recall correctly. He's an expert in market infrastructure and he's worked across multiple kinds of markets, asset classes and end-to-end -end business models through a variety of advisory roles, as well as those bits and pieces of his career where he was fully employed for a living, been between his advisory work. He specializes in new business initiatives, business design, the development of target operating models and market engagement. Most importantly, he's an extremely interesting bloke. Jake, welcome. You are live on IPO vid. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, did, did I write that introduction? That was terrible, wasn't it? It was very, it was very, well, I should have left it to you to, to write it, my friend. Um, yeah, just one correction. No, I wasn't, I wasn't down there on day one. I had started at, at Phillips and Drew with a very nice job in stockbroking, which mummy and daddy thought was entirely appropriate. And then nine months later, I went down the floor and realized that was the only place to be. So I got down there about uh, nine months after day one, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. Still great. pretty early in the piece then. So that was what, late 1983 or early 1984? Yeah, mid-83, mid joined Drexel, mm -hmm. which was uh, just a fantastic business at the time. Um, just so well, it actually had uh, under the dock, Doc Sandor had a truly global franchise. So Drexel ran franchise businesses, which were typically regional, but the dock had a global franchise. So our, so the Drexel Burnham IFF Institutional Financial Futures franchise was truly global. It was fantastic. We are. Head of research was Norman Maines, who worked for worked for uh, Volcker at the Fed. Um, so yeah, there were there were great times and, and learned a lot. 
And of course, that was an epic boss because, I mean, Professor Dr. Richard Sander, well, I mean, he effectively invented the game of financial futures. Absolutely. And, well, I mean, it's things, how things have changed. He, he actually encouraged us to trade. Imagine that now because he said, you know, obviously trading small, but that's, that's how you'll learn what really moves markets and vol plays or whatever it happens to be. So, of course, people, you know, well, the market's now so different, but you'd never get that opportunity now. But he was, uh, yeah, he was an amazing guy, so charismatic. And obviously we had great fun and we can't, we can't, or we also, I suppose we first met um, Patrick at, through the good offices of Tullet in Tokyo. And we, Indeed. If we're talking about old times, we must must bear a thought um, for for Mickey Stiller, who did so Absolutely. much, you know, for the exchange and so many people, not just at Tullets, uh, which had an amazing team at the time with Clive and David Kite and Blades and Bam Bam, etc. But um, you know, Mickey did so much for not only for you know kind of the exchange, but also for the people within it. Uh, he was a very generous, kind man, and so we should remember him. We definitely must remember him. And in fact, I owe my career in finance to him offering me a job originally. On, of all days, October the 19th, 1987, when he was apologising because there were a few things happening and he was a bit busy at the time in between interviewing me for 15 minutes at the end of my other interview. But yeah, he was a great man, Mike Stiller. And amongst many people who did so much for the marketplace, who came from extraordinary backgrounds that actually not the sort of backgrounds that you find too many people arriving into finance these days. Well, that was, you know, that was the most amazing thing about the floor was that you had, because you had all the different types of firms thrown together, be that stockbrokers, jobbers, uh, you know, commodity firms, investment banks, government broker, you know, every different type of firm. So that, that meant there were very different types of characters reflecting the nature of their businesses. So, um, yeah, we mustn't we mustn't reminisce too much, apart from giving you know giving away our ages. But it was you know because the market. But actually, having said that, you know there's nothing there's nothing new in the markets. Obviously, you a pioneer in terms of the digitalization or the application of technology. But actually, all it did is just embed business models. So what do, what do I mean by that? So co-location and high frequency trading in the, in the modern day is just the same as which position where you stood in the pit because if you were, if you were standing next to the paper filler for whoever it happened to be salomon you effectively had co-location because you had the shortest wire to hit the bid or lift the offer so whilst technologies you know change the business fundamentally all the, all the fundamentals that underpin the business are kind of uh, you know are similar well, I think the great the great example was also Gary Katz, who founded the ISC, the International Securities yeah. Exchange, all those years ago. I mean, the the one example he used was note the fact that in the early pictures of Wall Street, the offices of J.P. Morgan have the largest entrance door, and it's not actually pointing at the New York Stock Exchange. It points slightly at an angle. But when you look at it, you realize that that was actually to allow the blokes to go out of the telegraph room in J.P. Morgan's and straight in the floor traders' entrance. Yeah, yeah. So co-location is, is, has been around. Well, co-location has been around since the 19th century. I mean, I'm carrier pigeons when the Rothschilds sent back ultra-low latency Absolutely. data in order to manage to beat the horses. Yeah, the, the, the flow of information gives you that 
competitive yep. advantage and effectively you you know presents an opportunity for arbitrage. No, but of course on the other hand i mean one thing we've lived through at all times has been disease but it has to be said it feels a bit to me like the reaction to the current well pandemic has been rather strange compared to history yeah it's um well i suppose you know i think there's a few things to say about the pandemic the first thing of course is to reflect on the you know the human tragedy um but i see it in, in many ways when you get radical you know substantial this is going to accelerate change in so many aspects be that societal uh, economic political i mean no, we're not we're going to try not do too much in politics this evening but i, I see it actually in many ways as as as, as positive uh, putting aside you know always acknowledging the human tragedy um you know beneficial changes environment uh changes to supply chains which i think the ending of some of the more exploitative global supply chains uh, supply chains i think there's going to be changes obviously in terms of city centers um revitalization of suburbs working from home at digitalization i, I actually see a lot of the changes as as beneficial um more reshoring there's a lot of noise at the moment about you, you i mean you made it said in your comments about going back to work i had a i went into the city for the first time for months a couple of weeks ago and had a lunch with a with a few of us and it was very interesting listening to actually everybody else who worked for a big firm and i see quite a big uh, sort of difference between say smaller firms let's say up to 100 and you know bigger firms because i think smaller firms are less uh, able less set up to work remotely mm -hmm. when you've got a small group actually the dynamic is amongst that group so i think they're sort of keener to get back to work whereas for big firms they can work very effectively because roles are much more siloed um and the large companies are able to work pretty effectively at home i think the other thing for big firms is there's a big concern about litigation risk which i it hadn't occurred to me until um couple of people at lunch mentioned it so i think they're very cautious about uh you know sort of forcing people to come back to work because of that litigation risk but i think the the other feature of of, of working from home or working remotely is i think the business financial services because it's such a sophisticated industry can can operate sort of bau business as usual very effectively but i think everybody finds that the new business development side is going to be is, is more challenging um, because you really need you know to be face to face if you're doing a deal or building relationships if it, you're trying to set up some new business. Um, so I do think there are you know kind of positives. And my last thing is this idea that the government has anything to do with telling firms whether people should be going back to work or not. Companies are perfectly capable of working that out with their staff, and I see. Over the next 18 months, say, people will, firms, depending on the size of the firm, will evolve to new working practices, which will depend on your role, your age, your personal circumstances, seasonality. And I think firms will work that out over the next maybe 18 months. Um, but I certainly don't, you know, the new, you know, we're not going back to the old normal. I just don't, don't see that at all. No, it's it's very interesting altogether. And indeed, to all those of you, some of you I know are watching this from the office, which is actually a new development that wasn't taking place during series one only a few weeks ago. Send us a question, give us some information. We'll happily take comments. If you've got a question for Jake, 
far away we're going to be talking about various topics. I mean, COVID is the topic du jour in many ways. And certainly it's interesting when you look at COVID, Jake, because I think it's also changing quite a lot in terms of the generational impact. I mean, that, that's that's going to have a massive impact, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's it, depending on, you know, your age, your personal circumstances, I think, you know, the, as you say, the generational impacts are very variable. I mean, I feel particularly sorry for those who, I don't know, 40-ish with, a, you know, two or three children under 10 or something, you know, you're really going to have to sort of replan your life. So I think the, you know, obviously everybody's impacted to a greater or lesser extent, but I think it is it is quite distorted or it's magnified depending upon you know, which, which generation you're in. And I think that leads, you know, that generational impact makes one start to think about some of the financial impacts of, of COVID. And obviously that plays into macroeconomic side around debt. And, you know, the the size of the debt now is really becoming just kind of so extreme. So I think you have to start to think about whether one thinks that the size of the debt is a problem or not. Um, personally, I think it is because the response of the central bankers going back 10, 12 years to the financial crisis was you know, to prop everything up and kick the can. And personally, I think that those actions fundamentally contributed to the financial crisis that we have and that we're going to go through. Yeah, Jake, you're frozen for a second. Oh, there you are. I've got, yeah, I've still got you. Um, a bit of, you know, taxing a bit more, spending a yep. bit less. I, I, I don't see that as any sort of longer term solution. So I think that I, I hope, although I suspect they're not, they need to start thinking really radically because I just don't think you can just carry on pushing the debt down to subsequent generations. And I think that... The last point I make on sort of the, the, you know, the sort of the fiscal and the monetary side is I think there's a, you know, we know if you look at Japan, the Japanification of markets over the last 20, 25 years, negative interest rates have a massively distortive effect and, and a pernicious effect, in my opinion, because it punishes the, the eldest and the, and the youngest. Um, uh, you keep alive zombie companies. Um, and you fundamentally distort the price of risk capital. So just more negative interest rates, kicking the can, I, you know, I just don't think that is dealing with, really beginning to dealing with, dealing with the problems. And it really concerns me when people say, well, if you look at debt levels post Second World War, I think trying to compare the economy now with 70 years ago, I just think is a fundamental mistake. Yeah, well, it's such a different economy in every possible way, and it's so globally interconnected in a way it's never been before. And I, I would agree with you completely on that one, Jake. I mean, it's quite amazing. We've got an absolutely fantastic question from another life veteran, Alex Wilkinson. Alex, I'm going to come to that in just a moment. Uh, we're going to give Jake a chance to have a quick read at it while he prepares for that, because I want to talk about one or two other things, first of all, before we get in. Can you, can you pop the question back up? Because it was typical Alex. It was a long and... Torturous. You have a go at answering it now, Jake, if you want to. I'm quite happy to, to get stuck in. It's a great question. Alex Wilkinson, another long standing parishioner in the exchange world and exchange uh, trade. 
Yeah, well, as you'll, you'll have seen today, Alex, of course, that the um, commission is basically going to extend um, access clearing equivalents because, of course, uh, I don't want to be too political, but, of course, we know that that is probably one of the strongest cards the UK has because the capacity doesn't, the clearing capacity doesn't exist in the EU27, either from a capital perspective or from a product perspective. So the EU has extended that. I think it's, an, it's another 18 months. Um, the next point, I think the total number of equivalence determinations is, is in excess of 40. So I personally, big picture, I think there's going to be a deal. Uh, I think they'll fudge a deal um, in some way or another. And part of what's going on at the moment is, is, is part of that. But I absolutely don't believe that all equivalence determinations will come down because I don't think either side politically can be seen to be doing that. Um, so that's interesting. Sorry to interrupt because so the question, the EU and the UK have targeted completion of the equivalence assessments by the end of June 2020. And financial yeah. services expected to be a priority area of negotiation. And it's failed such so far. So you're giving us an idea of what the outcome will be. But how do you think, I mean, how does that leave finance? Because you can't very well turn around and say, you know, half of finance can be equivalent and half of finance can't. Well, look at the equivalence determinations relate to different areas of markets. So right. you might say, okay, EU27 entities can have access to UK CCPs, but they can't have access to UK uh, equity venues. So. so I actually think that, or you can do a different determination on data. So I think there will be, I would be very, I think there will be a deal, but I think equivalents will be selective because I think politically, uh, and I completely get the EU position on this, they can't be seen to be giving full access on financial services to, to, to the UK. It's a bit like saying the UK saying that the EU will have unchanged um, access into UK fishing waters. That's just, you know, politically not going to be acceptable. So I think there's going to be a subset of equivalence determinations. But I think I think a deal will be done. So. Very interesting that you think that a deal will be done, because certainly at the moment, it looks as if we're further away from a deal than ever. But at the same time, of course, that is part and parcel of the European Union's desire to have as many long dinners and make sure that the drinks trolley goes around 400 times before they come to well, a deal well, somewhere at 8 o'clock in the morning. I know we're going to touch on politics a bit at the end, but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be, um, you know, I don't think our domestic politicians uh, or our politicians are exempt from from criticism but we can we can touch on that a bit <laughs> well that's very interesting altogether thank you very much alex for the question feel free to come back with a follow-up if you'd like to ladies and gentlemen if you've got a question for uh, jake Pugh, you're happy to talk about macroeconomics the exchange and market structure parish we've been talking about COVID already and we might even delve a little bit into politics or indeed the structure of politics given jake's experience as a member of the european parliament so, I mean, to go back to the macroeconomic topics for a minute, I mean, you've, you've touched upon debt levels. And I must say, I've been looking around recently and it's very difficult to find anything other than small Caribbean islands or possibly Malta, where they managed to actually have their debt to GDP in control. But of course, Malta being part of the EU, they're ultimately going to be sucked into bailing out everybody else on the on the entire continent if that, if that happens in the near future, which I suspect it probably will. 
You've talked about kicking the can down the road, but what actually can manage to stop the can kicking? I mean, I realise that's a semi-political point as well. Well, hang on. If, we, if we're going to talk debt, with a, with a nod to previous um, kind of debt problems, I'm going to put on my Argentina. <laughs> um, I, I, actually, I actually think there's, and I did do a bit of work on this, I, I actually think there is an argument, certainly for looking at debt cancellation. And I would be, I'd be very surprised if, you know, the big, the global treasurers, you know, finance ministers, central bankers are, aren't looking at that. Clearly, it would require, uh, you know, G20 coordination. It would need to be a, gl a global effort. But I, I could see some route to debt cancellation, the purpose of which would be to normalise uh, the interest rate curve. Because the interest rate curve as it is, is just not solving the problem. So I think you could do some debt cancellation. You could then reissue at, uh, you know, normalized rates. I think there was a, something I was looking at this morning. I think the latest, was it the 10-year uh, bond went at um, minus 70 basis points or something? Yeah. And so... I mean, actually, it's one I was—I was on econ in, in econ committee um, in, in in Brussels, and you know they justify that you know they make a big effort justifying that negative interest rates has been proportional and helped the problem. Well, I, I, I just don't see it. If you think that's the policy, go go to mi minus five hundred basis points. So I, I I just don't think. I mean, we've seen this has been the policy recipe for the last ten years since the financial crisis, and unquestionably it has contributed to the debt problems we've now got. So I think you need to do something really pretty radical. Um, I think debt cancellation, normalization of yield curves, because uh, normalization of yeah, yield curves, but that means corporate borrowing has to go up because the problem is you're keeping zombie companies alive and then you completely distort the cost of risk capital. I mean, you and I, I think anybody who's, uh, a markets practitioner really believes in free markets and i i really don't think that the markets we have the the economy and we sort of have a version of sort of crony capitalism i know it's a bit of a trite expression but markets are not free and central banks are having a really distortive effect on it and i i just think we need to do something really radical because that debt problem is not going to go away, and we're going to have another mother and father of collapses at some point. You know. Well, well, certainly it's incredible. I mean, you look at some of the deals that have been going around recently, and I mean, if you take a company with a good balance sheet, okay, so therefore we can't say it's a zombie company far from it, but I mean, Intercontinental Exchange, it's only 20 years old. It's just borrowed 40-year money less than it was borrowing, I think, 20-year money five months ago. Yeah. And, you know, it refunded, did the biggest deal in its history buying Ellie May, 11 billion dollar deal great deal but at the same time it could go and actually borrow at a cheaper rate than it was borrowing three months ago thanks to the federal reserve buying everything yeah i, th I think that's absolutely right and, that, and that's the other sort of economic point i would make is as arising from covid obviously you've got the, the debt issue but also it's it's an absolute stock picker's dream isn't it? i mean this is the moment over the last 20 years the index firms the index trackers of you know been really dominant and you know generation of alpha has been a harder thing but right now if you are a stock picker this is your moment so i don't know what footsie's whatever you know 10 percent 10 12 percent off its pre-covid high 
but you've got stuff that's down, you know, 70% and stuff that's up 100%. So, and, yeah. and, and, and that actually is the link into, I guess, into the parish, isn't it? Because that is... Well, actually, I was, gonna, I was gonna stop there because actually the link before that is, the exciting thing is that I think at the moment you can basically, you could buy Apple or you could buy the FTSE 100. They're both worth roughly the same thing. When Apple went through $2 trillion just a couple of weeks ago, which strikes me as slightly absurd, given the fact particularly the FTSE 100 is, anything but a barometer of Britain. It's a barometer of actually a lot of international trade. And it yeah. just shows how far those companies have been left behind. Actually, I want to stop you on one thing because you haven't talked yet about you know, the US dollar or currencies. And I'm sure you've got something interesting to say there, Jake. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you've got a question for Jake, Come on down, send us a, send us a message on somewhere on the page, whether you're watching on Facebook, on LinkedIn, or on YouTube. You should be able to find a way to ask Jake a question in one of the boxes in the corner. He'll be delighted to answer it. But yeah, Jake, currencies. Yeah, so um, everybody's become, you know, basically saying it's the end of dollar hegemony. Uh, I, I don't claim to be a particularly good FX trader, but I, I think that is a, a proper bear trap. The dollar... The U.S. economy is is not going away as the dominant economy, not for a while. And you know, again, there's there's political challenges, but it is still fundamentally the engine of, of world growth. And like you said, I mean, just the creativity of their digital businesses. Um, so I would, you know, definitely not giving investment advice, and certainly not when it comes to the FX market. But I definitely would not be short of the dollar at these kind of levels and i guess you know the the us election in november is in part uh, a reason for that but it's it's an, it's it's part of that wider trend of you know kind of renationalization if you like of economic interests supply chains etc you know you've got fx battles which we haven't really seen for quite a long time not quite competitive devaluations but there's been quite a lot of attention on I mean, Trump said it quite a long time ago, actually, that uh, effectively, you know, the German economy is fundamentally supported or helped by an undervalued euro, which really serves the German economy well. So, you know, I, I think there's, you know, uh, I definitely wouldn't be short of, of, of the dollar or I'm, I'm very inclined to agree with that because actually the one thing that I think has marked our career is when we started our careers, we were just at about the point where everybody had written the dollar off and it was all over. And I mean, the mid-1970s, it was written off. And it's a, bit, it's a bit like the Ferrari Formula One team. Every time everybody writes it off and after last week's appearance in Mugello, they should be written off. But suddenly within another year or two, it all bounces back and it seems cushy. And the thing I find difficult to believe about the dollar is it just settles so much. I mean, it's that question of, you know, cocoa in sitting in warehouses in Rotterdam is all priced in US dollars, as are a gazillion things around the world. And there's absolutely no interest amongst the most of the global trading community to move that into euros or Swiss francs or Aussie dollars or Chinese yuan or anything else. I, I fundamentally agree. I, I don't see any of that sort of change away from the dollar being, you know, the currency of international trade. Uh, and I, and I, I certainly don't see that changing irrespective of the US election result um, in, in, in November. Yeah, and that, and that is interesting because, of course, 
the issue of Rotterdam-based, dollar-based commodities and things like that, of course, led us into the CCP equivalence debate and all of those other things that have been going on, which I suppose is not quite as eloquent as the segue you offered just a moment ago, but gets us to the parish of exchanges. Gosh, it's been such a busy year. It's almost difficult to believe that there have been people in huge numbers of sectors that have been furloughed. And, and I mean, I really I don't want to sound contemptuous as I say that, but the exchange business has just been manic. Yeah, and what, and what really struck me, I suppose, when I when I finished doing the politics in January and sort of reacquainting myself in the markets and looking at a lot of the market infrastructure firms, and then what what I really saw, which is interesting, is the major divergence in performance, um, sort of post COVID. So what I started looking at was a pretty sort of simple measure, which is performance versus stock performance versus pre-COVID high. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I think there's probably, we've seen greater divergence in stock performance across the sector than we've seen for a very long time. So you had some firms, um, CME, for example, which was, you know, I think it's still in excess of 20% below its pre-COVID high, and you've got other businesses, let's say like, Market Act, and, th and this is across the sort of the Young's Pyramid, as it were, from yeah. the Premier League, did one to two. Um, obviously, CME in the sort of the Premier League, but then you look at, you know, I don't know, mar Market Access, maybe put that in Div 2, Div 3. They were at one point sort of 40% above their pre-COVID high. Um, NASDAQ, strong performer. Euronext, a strong performer. Yeah. So CBOE kind of performance being a bit more challenged. And, I, and what, what I saw is that, you know, conditions in NQ1, Q2 were so fantastic for the industry that then creates a problem. Because, of course, what investors expect to see is both uh, top line growth and operating margin improvement. Yeah. And that becomes really tricky when you've had such a stellar um, sort of Q1, Q2. So, you know, you've got real winners and losers. I think, I mean, you talk about Young's Pyramid. I talk about, so a few of us talk about the market cap gap between yep. CME and ICE. I think that got out to about 23 billion at one point. CME over, obviously, shortly after the, the next deal. Um, it's now into three and a half billion. Yep. So that is... Uh, you know, really massive divergence in performance. And that is going to lead, I think, directly into M&A because I think that investors, I mean, apart from the M&A that we've got that you mentioned at the at the top of the show about uh, LSEG and potential bidders, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I, I see there's going to be more M&A in the sector because obviously markets have been very becalmed in the last couple of months. Absolutely. But the M&A is going to be quite interesting, though, because the one thing that we've had in recent times is obviously the collision with antitrust that's taken place. And I mean, Deutsche Börse and London Stock Exchange Group seem to have had a remarkable ability to find antitrust in almost anything that they wanted to do most of the time. What, what can really be done that manages to get around that antitrust? Well, and if, if we're, if I guess, if sorry, if we're talking parish, and I should take off my Argentina cap, and in in, re, in deference to Chicago, I'm going to pop on my Chicago Bulls three P cap, which those Excellent. who follow basketball will know this is a very historic cap from uh, from the Chicago Bulls uh, three time NBA. Um, 
So, yeah, I think that antitrust, as we know, is, and I don't, I don't see any issue with this. Is it is truly sort of economic competition that's analysed at one level, but I think again because of nationalisation of economic interests, I see politics as being a big driver for antitrust. Yeah, um, and. You know, I think the idea that that you know CME able to uh, internalize the entire U.S. Treasury cash and derivatives markets and data or whatever, you know, as long as the U.S. Treasury is okay with that, then then they were they were able to do that. So I think the challenges are political as much as they're economic, and that's potentially what we're going to see with. Uh, with the LSE group uh, and prospective bidders for Borsa Italiana and MTS, aren't they? Uh, because you've got the, you've got the history of the previous determinations, but fundamentally it is about I think EU twenty the ownership of EU twenty seven assets, and you know I completely understand that um, Vestage and, and the Commission and the EU would would really care about the ownership of, of those assets. But it is interesting, isn't it, with the number of bidders? And, the, and if you like, the different profile of, of the bidders. Um, but I, I, I mean, you, I know you have strong views on the LSEG Refinitiv deal, but where would you, I mean, I still think that, uh, I think Balsa will be sold, and I think LSE Refinitiv will will close. Do you see the same thing? Well, I think it will happen, um, unfortunately, because I still think LSEG Refinitiv is just the worst deal because LSEG has no coherent history of integrating its deals, and that's my problem. And therefore, trying to integrate Refinitiv, which has always been dysfunctional through the times of being Reuters and then Thomson Reuters, is just not going to be an easy deal and that's why I think you're going to find the market cap of LSEG I wouldn't be surprised as I said last year I wouldn't be surprised that in three years time we come back and it's worth exactly the same even though it's added the the refinitive assets because it's just going to be so difficult to manage and that was one of the reasons I thought it was a shame because actually I thought Borsa Italiana did work rather well within the LSEG group I mean I suppose maybe that's because it was a Clara first acquisition and had more time to bed down but it certainly seemed to have been more coherently within the business but I'm, I'm very interested intrigued by the, the Borsa Italiana bid situation more than I think you are. Well, first of all, of course, the price, because everybody said, I mean, last week we were kind of at, you know, maybe, th I mean, uh, two months ago, everybody was about two and a half, three. Then suddenly it was like three, three and a half. And I mean, that's going to be your lot. Now we've had the first round of bids. And as far as we understand it, we, we're, we're three and a half to four billion euros. So we're already at four and a quarter, 4.75 billion US dollars. So we're way in excess of the sort of numbers that people were expecting that the group could sell for. And if the, you know, if the rumors are true, if the Swiss are the biggest bidder, then that makes it very interesting because many people say that Borsa Italiana's Italian Euronext connection seem to be the preferred bidder. They've got a bit of ground to make up. Yeah, I think that's right. And of course, I mean, uh, you know, one has to say that, that the Euronext, since it's, uh, since it's, you know, IPO spin out from NYSE, uh, ICE NYSE, um, you know, has been a major success because they have really effectively, and I think, better than probably a lot of people thought they would do. But it starts to be a stretch, isn't it? Because the market cap of Euronext, what's about seven euros? So, 
you know, when you're digesting something, as you say, which is north of 50% of your market cap, it starts to get stretchy, doesn't it? And also the ownership structure of six kind of makes it, it harder for Euronext to know what they're bidding against. Um, and obviously, you know, Deutsche Börse is a, is a you know, very large organization. So I think, I think structurally, I think as you've said, Patrick, structurally, Euronext Borsa fits because you could replicate, create something similar yeah. to what Euronext did with the IPO, which is sort of a group of reference shareholders uh to sort of you know protect domestic interests which is which is completely fine so i think i think structurally that looks fine but ultimately you know the shareholders need to be able to, to approve it and the business needs to, to digest it it was interesting yesterday in the press release that euronext put out saying that effectively that italy would be the uh highest revenue producing member of the Euronex family, which I thought was quite a quite a kind of nice thing. Um, quite, a, quite a clever move. Yeah, and it's very interesting because it's becoming it's becoming a very, very complex situation. As you say, it's actually changing the whole dynamic. And we've got a great question from Alex Wilkinson. I'm going to come back to in just a second. Thank you very much, Alex. But it is interesting because they're changing the dynamic. And certainly both Six and Deutsche Börse clearly can manage to extend. And what's Deutsche Börse? 27, 28 billion euro market cap as of today. I mean, they can afford to pay more or less any amount of money whatsoever. Um, and that brings us to, I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm saying Alex Wilkinson. I'm getting my Alex's mixed up. Alex Maturi. Welcome. Good evening. Of course, Alex was a magnificent guest uh, during Series 1. Lovely to see you again, former head of S&P, Dow Jones Global Indexes. So what Alex is asking is, will the Italians actually allow the Swiss to be the buyers? Because, of course, the Swiss are not in the EU27. It seems as if it might not fit the political narrative, notes Alex. Great question. Thank you very much. Uh, an evening of great Alex's. Yeah, I think I think that's a very interesting point. I'd also add, to, I think it's absolutely right, Alex. I'd also add to it that it's sort of made more sensitive given the six acquisition of BME, because you've then got uh, Spanish and Italian assets with inside the EU twenty seven. Um, you know, it's not like the CCPs are fundamentally clearing very different product sets. So uh, I would imagine you'd want to see some sort of integration of the CCPs. Is that something that both Spain and Italy would, would, would go for? Uh, so I agree with you. I don't think it does fit the political narrative, but it's not easy to bid against the Swiss, is it? Because you don't really know what you're bidding against in terms of its, you know, as a, as a non-listed, as a private company. You don't know what you're bidding against in terms of their balance sheets and all that kind of stuff. So it is much, much harder. And and you could, and I, I guess you could also present a narrative which is the Swiss wanting to deal with the issues they have with the EU in terms of access. Um, we had a really good presentation by a Swiss delegation actually when I was in, in Brussels talking about the nature of their sort of complex bilateral deals. And actually, the Swiss were saying, in a sense, they would like actually to sort of simplify that. So I think I think at one level, it complicates the political narrative, but it may provide an opportunity if the Swiss present it cleverly 
for that for the Swiss and the EU to resolve some of the impasse they have about respective market access. Very interesting, Jake, the possibility that the Swiss might be able to sell it as a, as a better deal for themselves. I can't help but feel today that things might have got a little bit more complex if there actually is some sort of a UBS credit Swiss deal in the offing behind the scenes. But at the same time, you're right. I mean, the ability to raise capital, even from the other, whatever it is, 45 bank shareholders of Swiss exchange is not exactly difficult for six if they want a huge amount of money. And I suppose while we're talking about you know huge amounts of money you mentioned young's pyramids and the whole issue of the winners and losers and performance divergence amongst the exchanges we've got this amazing phenomenon at the moment retail traders suddenly having been damned disowned i mean essentially they were the they what the um the untouchables of financial investment and suddenly they've become very much the flavor du jour well, I, I think there's something really interesting going on in retail. That So in a previous life, I did, I mean, I can say this about any firm. I did quite a lot of work, uh, I think 97 to 83, I worked all over the Barclays Group, as was. And if you think, what, what I've seen is two things, really. One is the US share trading phenomenon in the sort of rally, and particularly the uh, electronic platforms, you know, kind of Robinhood. And there's this big question about to what extent Robinhood, the retail community, contributed to the rally. So it's a, it's a much more complex, you know, so there's a, it's a complex and nuanced answer because the impact varies hugely across different, you know, sectors and stocks. But I think everybody agrees that the retail participation, the retail punter, contributed more to the rally than retail punters have ever have done before. And the second thing I think you're seeing is quite a few exchanges, and these, these are not speculative product launches, but established exchanges introducing more mini contracts. Yeah. So I, I'm, I may be putting two and two together and making some number of them four, but I, I sense that the retail participation, probably for the first time ever, is sort of exchanges are acknowledging that. And then the reason I mentioned the Barclays thing is like, you know, any exchange doing a piece of product development, you go and speak to Barclays Capital, you would have gone to speak to BGI, um, but you wouldn't have gone to speak to Barclays stockbrokers or anything like that. Yeah. So, I, you know, exchanges would not really be reaching down into that food chain. Um, and I think... So I think that's something that is is definitely going on, and I think that is a development. And I also think, actually, coming back to you know, we were talking about you mentioned about Refinitive deal is, and I kind of sense that maybe the data story for the exchanges might just be topping out a little bit. Mm -hmm. So there's now so many. You've got all the exchanges. You've got the pure play data. Firms like you know, kind of uh, FactSet Market or whatever. There's now such a proliferation of data, and I, I get that. Obviously, with digitalization technology, you can apply, you can you know, analyze the data more. You can put more analytics on it. But I, I suspect that you know that data story, which has really driven the exchanges. I think that might just be topping out. And there's just one reference point on that. Quickly, I'd make is that. It's interesting to me, I'll just make a quick comment and not expand on it, is it's interesting to me that, that ICE have changed their segmental reporting and yeah. now put the data business back in the exchange business. 
So, you know, they were first to go down, really, you know, go down that data route, report it, stand it out. And they're the first, you know, kind of to change that. Plus, of course, they were looking at eBay, which plays into the retail. So I think there's quite a lot of having had that stellar Q1, Q2, I think there's some actually some challenges for market infrastructure firms coming up. It strikes me that also I think there's a huge generational play just going on here, which is the whole digital world has managed to develop an amazing amount of knowledge transfer. And if you think about it, it takes 20 to 40 years for most philosophies to kind of trickle down. And, you know, Richard Sander, who we've been talking about, well, he first invented financial futures in the early 1970s. He also, in fact, invented a prototype electronic exchange in 1971 using technology that would be blown away today by even the worst mobile phone. And at the same time, I think, you know, it's taken 20, 40 years. There have been, let's face it, 650,000 people a year doing courses for the National Stock Exchange of India, doing, you know, Futures 101. That's been replicated around the world. Suddenly you start to have a huge number of people, even they've done MBAs or something like that. A huge number of them have got an idea about options pricing. And the facility of all these brokers being available simply changes the game. And that's where I do think a lot of the industry's idea that, oh, they're all going to blow up, lose their money and disappear. I subtly think that this time it's different. I completely agree. And I think there's a there's an expression people have been talking about, so the democratization of finance. And that, I think, is, is what you're seeing. I think it I mean, clearly it's going to have a different profile because, you know, from a from an individual's point of view, that's been really driven by, uh, you know, kind of wealth and asset gathering, you know, in the UK, pensions, ISA investments, et cetera. But what I do see is a sort of, is a merging of those different segments, as if you like kind of, if you put aside real estate, sort of like pensions, investments and trading, I think historically they've been quite distinct. Uh, obviously, they've overlapped at the margins, but I see more of that overlap. So I, I, yeah. I think there are, there are some changes coming. Down. I think it's changes, and I think there's, actually there was a great comment made by Phil McIntosh, the chief economist of Nasdaq, yesterday in a in a live stream they were doing about the future of retail trading, and what he was noticing was how capital conscious the new era of retail investors actually are, which I think fits back into the mini discussion and indeed back into the discussion we were having last season with just a few, just a month or so ago with Alex Maturi, who asked the question that sort of kicked this segment off, which is quite fascinating. Of course, therefore, we're looking at retail traders, the establishment of particularly, it has to be said, the buy sides seem to regard them as being the deplorables of finance. Well, I think you've probably got another hat up your sleeve and it's time for the deplorables of politics to have a quick discussion in the last eight or nine minutes as we're getting here, Jake. And No, I'm, I'm, I'm only doing this because somebody asked me to. I'm not, I'm not doing it to, to wind anything. Doing it for a friend. Yes. Okay. That's a... I did it for a bet. So anyway, so apologies to all those who found it. Well, there you go. I'm, I'm glad somebody, somehow or other you've managed apologies to all those who found it. The show, yes, well done. Um, it's meant as a joke, not, I'm sure not. Excellent, excellent altogether. How did you come by this particular artifact? Oh, I've got, I've got more um, stash as my children. Like I can put on my scarf, my uh, my boxes. I've got, I've got all sorts of stuff next door. So uh, amazed, amazed we couldn't get rid of it all. I've even got a coaster actually. If you want, if you want. To <laughs> oh well, there you go. Coaster we got, we got, we got almost. <laughs> 
the things that the things that happen how, how economies can be bolstered by electoral politics so so yes i mean i mean talk us through a little bit of particularly given the fact you've seen the inside of brussels i mean you know the uk as a member state and go from there yeah i mean i i lots of people who who know me probably don't think I'm particularly balanced in my political outlook, but I do try to be. So I, I will say this, that I that I think that the UK was a pretty incompetent member state. So what, what do I mean by that? So with, you know, very quickly, I became aware that, you know, it would, I mean, nobody thought, irrespective of what I might have wanted or people with my uh, you know, same political outlook to myself, now, nobody ever thought we were leaving the EU. So I, I just felt that we'd been really bad at being a member. So what do I mean by that? So we did quite a lot of work on the European Investment Bank, the world's biggest multilateral lender. The UK has 16% of the share capital, but only ever got like 8% of the loan book. And it's a, it's a bit like sort of being a member of a sports club that has multi-sports, you know, a dozen sports. And you say, well, I'm not going to use the tennis courts. I'm not, I'm not going to use the swimming pool. And I, I just, I felt that if, you know, if I'd been an advisor, I would have said to the politicians, look, I, I get the, and this is not just the UK, it's right across the, uh, all the member states. They're always, naturally, the, the domestic politicians are playing to the domestic audience, be that Eurosceptical or whatever it happens to be. And I just thought, right, okay, I would say to them, right, play to the domestic audience, by all means. But, you know, if you're in the club and you don't expect to be leaving, then be a much more effective member. So I, I felt that the UK had been a pretty sort of ineffectual member, actually. Um, so that's no, that's no blame on the, on the other member states. Um, but it has to be so that's a, a scintillating opinion to offer while genuinely wearing a Brexit party hat. Well, I'd, I'd say, I'd, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to go down the route of, you know, the sort of the nature of the institutions, other than to say there's a thing called Cordon Sanitaire, which sets out institutionally to make sure that there are no Eurosceptics on any of the committee slots. Those are all normally handed out broadly proportional to um, the size of the grouping in the European Parliament. And I saw firsthand in a number of uh, in a number of committees where they elect the officers of the committee who have basically about 20 committees, five commi uh, committee chairs and vice chairs. So any, any Eurosceptic was systematically excluded from having a um, having a voice on the committee. And I'd also say these people, when I say Eurosceptics, very few people in the European the European Parliament want to, want to leave the European Union. So that, that kind of stuff I think is really dangerous because you're actually deliberately silencing a minority voice, I don't know, 10, 12% of the European Parliament who don't want to leave the European Union, but to say we're systematically going to remove your voice from uh, the sort of the democratic institution, I think it's a really dangerous, and they call it the cordon sanitaire. Mm -hmm. So they erect this, you know, sanitary cordon around the, uh, around the committee slots. And it's, there's just no sense to it. It doesn't actually, you know, the Eurosceptic voice is, is, you know, a very small one. So that, that kind of stuff, I think actually is quite disturbing, really. And that's when we would say it's anti-democratic, that, that's, that's an example of it. But I, you know, I don't, I don't want to come up here too. No, but, so, so looking at that though, I mean, 
on a more national basis, it's quite interesting because you've touched upon the lack of technical expertise that you're seeing in a large number of areas. And I think, I mean, you and I have had this discussion offline before. It's actually quite terrifying. And I don't mean this against particularly the European Parliament per se, just no. going to parliaments and finding the sheer lack of understanding. Totally, Patrick. And that is, people will say to me, what's, what's the biggest difference? And for, for everybody that we know in the markets, across the whole industry, whether it's your you know, head of operations who knows how every physically delivered commodity gets delivered, whether your technology in terms of algo or connectivity, whether your risk, the you know, head of compliance, we're all used to dealing with people with deep technical skills. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing I found most shocking about politics is there are very few people with technical skills. They might be adept at dealing with tricky questions on kind of news night or whatever it happens to be, but the whole system of government, you know, you, you do a few years on the backbenches, then you become a junior minister of transport for a couple of years, then just as you're getting your, you know, your arms around the brief, you'll then move to be number three at defence, then you go to be number two at the health service. So I, I think, I really think the whole structure of Government. I mean, talking, I'm talking about the UK, not about the EU. Yes. Really fundamental. You know, the operation of the state and coming back to COVID, um, you know, really fundamentally needs to be to be overhauled. And my only political prediction would be that um, if you go back to 2030 June 2016, if you like, as the start of disruption, I think personally, I think populism populism goes back like about 40 years to, to Thatcher. Um, but my only prediction is that we are still much closer to the beginning of the political disruption than we are to the end. Well, Jake Pugh, on that rather exciting, cum chilling note, I'm going to unfortunately have to draw things to a conclusion because we have been through an hour of incredible conversation from business as usual, the impacts of COVID and, and many multi-dimensional factors that are going to affect the workplace going forward. Jake has brought us today, well, three different hats and I have to say thousands of interesting opinions during the course of the last hour. Thank you to Alex Maturi, thank you to Alex Wilkinson for your excellent questions during the course of the last hours of Discussion. We've touched upon a number of areas in the world of politics. We've been looking at macroeconomics and certainly, I think, amongst other things, the heated agreement that we have on the fact that it's uh, certainly a long way off calling for the fat lady singing over the US dollar's future. At the same time, what's been going on in the world of exchanges? So much happening there and so much excitement. And let me just say, ladies and gentlemen, at this point, if you're looking for the analysis of the news flow on a daily basis, don't forget Exchange Invest Daily, which is my newsletter, the unique news service of the Bourse business. It's read by, well, illustrious people like Jake and indeed many of our previous guests and also the senior management of major exchanges throughout the world. Taking a step back, we've looked at the political issues for today. There's certainly going to be upheaval ahead. And if nothing else, I think the one thing we can agree on is Q4 is just around the corner and it looks as if it could be a crackingly exciting time. Hopefully during that we'll have an opportunity to get back together with Jake Pugh and have a further discussion about how the world has been developing. It only remains for me to say thank you very much to Olen Bata, our production team, for this, the IPO video live stream. My name is Patrick L. Young. We will be back next Tuesday at the same time on the same streams. 
Thank you for watching. Thank you, JP, for being our guest. Have a great week in life and markets, ladies and gentlemen.